Good morning, everyone. Jill and I had a chance to go out last week to Colorado to a retreat for pastors and spouses with folks from all over the country, all different kinds of church settings. It was so good to get a chance to be away, to be encouraged, to be pastored. That was kind of the idea. It's like this is a, a place for pastors to be pastored. Um, even amid all of the, the pain that people were dealing with, one of the very first things we did was put up on post-it notes kind of the things that uh, people were struggling with and referred to that throughout a few days as the wall of pain. Um, but even in the midst of all of that, you know, it was, it was encouraging and hopeful to see the ways God is at work, the Spirit is active uh, in churches all around the country. It was a good time to be away. I'm glad to be back picking up our Lenten series with you. And on the way out there, um, I watched a movie that swept the Oscars this year. And that was uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. How many of you have seen it? Right? So good. So delightfully weird, right? Uh, one of the most truly creative things that I've seen in a while, several layers of complexity with these kind of hyper-realistic visuals and over-the-top sounds and colors one moment, and then these absolutely breathtaking scenes of, of silence and stillness in the next. Uh, but before all of the complexity of the plot gets introduced, the director and the screenwriter give you the central conflict of the movie within the very first opening scene. And then the rest of the film is this kind of fantastic, apocalyptic adventure across the multiverse that is at the same time an intimate family drama about the pains and tensions of a multi-generational immigrant family learning how to actually see each other. And so you know in the very beginning that it's going to be resolved, but in the midst of all the complexity that gets introduced, you wonder how on earth is everything going to tie together? And why do those people have hot dogs for fingers in that one place? If you're curious, you got to watch the movie. But that's what a good story does. It, it, it introduces you to a plot device, the complexity, the conflict that's going to drive the story forward and also keep the story from becoming just like a series of random events. But it also plants a seed about how that story is eventually going to get resolved. In a good story, you can even see the plot device in the very beginning, but it still will take you on a journey and you get to see how all of that's going to unfold. Now, the Bible, as we have said, is the true story of God's grace in Jesus. And like all good stories, it too has a plot and it has a device through which the conflict of the story is introduced and uh, this, this conflict that drives the plot forward. The story begins with God as creator who blesses and who loves all that he has made. God then entrusts this good creation into the hands of those who bear his image. Uh, he, he continues to give them this work of, of tending to the garden, of creating, of cultivating, of making culture, of making beauty, uh, doing things that promote flourishing to take this whole project of creation forward. And the first two chapters of the Bible are incredibly important because they reveal God's intention for us in this good creation. And they tell us that God made a choice. And the choice was to be for us. The refrain that kind of sounds throughout the first 
uh, chapter, the first kind of poetic language of the Bible is that God's created order is good. Eden is this place that kind of defies the imagination. You know, it's like one of those Disney movies where all the animals kind of like nestle, nestle up next to the humans and they're incapable of doing harm to one another. It's this place where everything is singing, where everything is vibrant, everything is beautiful. And the genre that it belongs to, this kind of narrative, is what we call myth, meaning the, the language of the text is not scientific, not historic, but poetic, layered with meaning, layered with metaphor. And, and I want to be clear that in calling it mythic, I'm not saying that it isn't true. Myth is actually designed to reveal the deepest truths about human nature, about existence, about God, about, about the whole world that we live in. And Genesis 1 through 11 is this deepest kind of truth. But I find it fascinating that in these opening chapters, we are told very little about the garden itself, but we are told a lot about the limitations one thing that is described well is in the middle of the garden. It's the tree whose fruit Adam and Eve are forbidden to take. So just think about this for a minute. The biblical description of paradise is one in which all of your needs are met, but where you cannot have everything your heart desires. This tree is placed in the center of the garden, in full display, as if to say, you cannot ignore it. All of your needs are met, and yet you cannot have everything you want. That is God's good intention for us. That is the setup of the story. And then in Genesis 3, we are introduced to the conflict that drives the rest of the plot forward. The serpent comes and tells Adam and Eve, God is lying to you. None of that stuff about the tree is true at all. You notice, what is the target that the adversary goes after? It's trust. Trust that God has your best intentions at heart. Trust that God is good. No, God has an agenda. God wants to actually keep you from your self-actualization. The fruit is sweet and it is good. What kind of God would keep you from getting what you need? Well, it's only the kind that's going to keep you from reaching your full potential, the kind that wants to oppress. So Adam and Eve, they are created to know and to experience God's love, to be in relational unity, and yet the lie that explodes the universe is the one that God is not being straight with you, that there is deception, that there is something wrong with God's definition of good and evil. And if you eat of this tree, you will be able to determine what is good and what is true and what is right on your own terms be it by the voice in your head or by the desires that reverberate in your heart. That, instead of trusting in God's wisdom, that God loves you, that God has spoken truth that came through his word to you. Well, the rest of the story, from Genesis onward, is God's recovery plan to remove the lie that has become embedded in the heart of creation itself. Taking a cue from Ignatius of Loyola, the psychologist David Benner notes that the essence of sin 
is unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Until I'm absolutely convinced of this, I will do everything I can to keep my hands on the controls of my life because I think I know better than God what I need for my fulfillment. All temptation is this, the inclination to redefine good and evil without reference to God's good creation and whether that is based on the, the, your own voice or the voice that is in your AirPods or of your favorite podcast, your favorite YouTuber, your favorite spiritual leader, or the desires that are in your heart that are curved inward on themselves rather than trusting in God and God's intelligence, wisdom, and love as it comes to us through the word that God speaks to guide us on our way to life. Genesis' story is archetypal in nature. Adam or Adam means human in Hebrew. Hava or Eve means life. And so in other words, this is the origin story of sin. This is how lies entered into human life and led to the fracturing of relationships between humans and God, between humans and each other, between humans and the rest of creation. And the point for us is that we make a category error when we reduce sin to a set of actions or to a kind of willful rebellion. On some level, sin is just the state of the world that we live in as the result of believing lies. In his book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer makes the tongue-in-cheek point that like, nobody wakes up on a Tuesday morning and says, you know, I love my spouse and my kids, Life is going great. I think I'm going to detonate it all and have an affair just to see what it's like. Like nobody makes that decision out of obligation, out of duty. They do it because it becomes the result of letting a lie into our, into our minds, into our bodies, and then living that lie out in the world. And the lie looks like this. I deserve more than my marriage can deliver. I cannot be happy with this person with these limitations or maybe even I am so unlovable they would be better off without me. But all of that is some variation and some justification that comes back to did God really say or can God be trusted? We believe a lie about what will lead to life. And then the rest of the Old Testament is a story of, of Israel's saga and its cycles of trust and, and distrust. The rest of human history is simply Genesis 3 on repeat. But then we get to Jesus. And where all of human history fails, Jesus does not. We come to Matthew 4. And it is essentially the story of Eden, but in reverse. Instead of a garden, Jesus is in the wilderness. Instead of believing the lies, it is active resistance through the word that is spoken. Instead of expulsion from a place, this thrusts Jesus into the world. And in Matthew 4, we read this. If you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God. Genesis 3, language all over again. 
Jesus answered by quoting Deuteronomy 8, uh, incidentally a passage while Israel was tested in the wilderness. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Temptation this time comes in the form of quoting scripture, Psalm 91 to be specific, but Jesus fires back with a quote from Deuteronomy 6. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me, if you will just compromise, you can have everything you want. But Jesus again comes back with Deuteronomy 6, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. It's this fascinating exchange that takes place. On one level, it's, it's kind of a debate about how to interpret scripture. Uh, it's the ancient Near East equivalent, kind of like of a rap battle. Um, instead of like dropping bars, though, they are, you know, quoting scripture at each other. It's a showdown about the nature of scripture itself and whether it can be trusted as somehow containing the authority of God. But on another level, this is the story of redemption, the the renewal of the story that began in Genesis 3. It is the redemption of every failure since becoming undone. The failure of Adam, the failures of Israel, the failures of you and me. Jesus' faithfulness in the midst of those failures, his trust in the Father mediated through the word spoken in Scripture, make it possible for him to restart, to reboot, to reclaim the entire human project through cross and resurrection. And you'll notice Jesus does not simply say no when temptation comes. He quotes Scripture He he likely had the entirety of the Hebrew Bible committed to memory. It it becomes so seared in his mind that it becomes the mental model, the, the story through which he understands, through which he navigates reality, the place where he finds his, his point in the story and acts accordingly. But Jesus also doesn't just quote scripture like it's some sort of magic, you know, Harry Potter-esque incantation that will ward off evil. In quoting scripture, It gives him the bearings to live out a different story to the stories of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It enables him to turn away. Jesus trusts Scripture as a means of trusting God, and that becomes the source of his victory over temptation. Another way of saying that is that for Jesus, the Bible is a spiritual authority. The way that Jesus responds and subjects himself to scripture and its story is an act of trust and obedience to God. This is what the church has referred to when it says and it calls the Bible a spiritual authority. And I think of all the notions that we have when it comes to the Bible, this is the toughest one to swallow. The idea that it, it somehow contains or is imbued with authority, that it has some kind of 
claim over our lives. That's one that makes our hearts, you know, kind of jump a little bit. It's one that makes our shoulders kind of tense up because there are a lot of ways that this has been used and abused. The term Bible thumping, it exists for a reason. Some people have been hit pretty hard with the Bible. But before we get all worked up, it's helpful to kind of define terms. And so, as usual, M.T. Wright is very helpful with this. He writes, the phrase, the authority of Scripture can make Christian sense only if it is a shorthand for the authority of the triune God exercised somehow through Scripture. The role of Scripture is not simply to provide true information about or even an accurate running commentary upon the work of God in salvation and new creation, but as taking an active part within that ongoing purpose. Scripture is there to be a means of God's action in and through us, which will include but go far beyond the mere conveying of information. When we talk about Scripture as the authority of God, we are saying that the wisdom and the authority of God in describing who he is, in describing who we are, in describing how the world works, is captured in the story that Scripture tells. And not only that, but that we find our part in carrying that story toward its end as we follow Jesus in the world, that somehow all of that is found in this ancient collection of writings. To trust the Bible, in other words, is to trust the God who is at the center of the Bible's story. And God chose to vest authority in this story and in the community that will tell this story and live this story out in the world. Now, I know you're smart. I know you have all kinds of feelings about this. Uh, and before we go too much further, if we're going to talk about trusting the way that Jesus trusts, I think we need to talk a little bit about authority in general. So I'm going to get philosophical for a minute. Bear with me, because I think it's important. Some of you are thinking, wait, you haven't been philosophical yet? What are you doing? Well, in the post-Christian, in the post-modern West, there is this strong kind of institutional, you know, uh, anti-institutional, anti-authoritarian, individualist streak. That's just kind of the water that we breathe. Authority is kind of a dirty word, right? Uh, partially because our imaginations are shaped by abuses of authority, uh, abuses specifically of positional authority, the idea of who is in charge, who has the ability to control and or manipulate and or oppress. It's the kind of top-down authority that we're used to is the authority of an org chart or the authority of like a coach and a team or the rank and file of the military where obedience follows a clear sort of organized structure or there are consequences. And the consequences bear themselves out in a couple of different ways. You know, if you're on a basketball team and you decide to kind of just do your own thing, instead of running the plays with your teammates, you will either blow the game potentially or get benched by your coach. That's the consequence. We also live in a very fluid society. The philosopher Charles Taylor says that the, the last 200 years is a shift from a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. 
That is, we no longer live under the guidance of an authority. We don't take our cues on how to live from a tribe, from our parents, from a church, from a community, much less from a collection of writings, but instead by what rings true to our most authentic self as defined by our inner longings or our psychological needs or what have you. In fact, it's kind of a mark of maturity in our cultural moment not to let internal boundaries repress your desires from within or to be oppressed from without by some sort of external authority. If, if, if all those things aren't you know, an authentic expression of your inward desires or your self-understanding, they aren't for you. And the only moral guardrails that are really left are consent and the idea of not harming another person. And so, you know, you hear a phrase as, as seemingly harmless as speak your truth, but it assumes that the self is the sovereign center that determines reality, rather than that the self is an object that sometimes needs to be brought into correspondence with reality from something from the outside. And essentially, one's identity is no longer something received as part of a family, as part of a tradition. But it's something that we are free to, in fact, something that we are obligated to construct for ourselves without reference to history, to family, or even to a coherent story. That is how you become an authentic self. Philosopher Alistair McIntyre calls the prevailing cultural mood that we live in as one that is dominated by emotivism, which he defines as this. The doctrine that all evaluative judgments, or more specifically, all moral judgments, are nothing but expressions of preference, expressions of attitude or feeling, insofar as they are moral or evaluative in character. And the question for us, if that is the air we breathe, and McIntyre makes a pretty compelling case that that is the air we breathe, he wrote this back in 1984, so it's been a minute, What happens when on an individual level we end up loving the lies that hurt us? Who has the authority to tell us to stop? Only the self. What happens on a social level when we can't seem to even agree on what lies are or what harm is? Well, every moral conversation becomes interminable with the sovereign self retreating to its own ideological camp. And what happens when you read the Bible in a culture that places the self as the ultimate arbiter of reality? Well, we end up reading the Bible not to know and seek and worship God, but to validate and worship ourselves. Stanley Hauerwas put it provocatively, He says, no task is more important than for the church to take the Bible out of the hands of individual Christians in North America who are trained to believe that they are capable of reading the Bible without spiritual and moral transformation. They read the Bible not as Christians, not as a people set apart, but as democratic citizens who think their common sense is sufficient for the understanding of Scripture. Maybe he was a little cranky when he wrote that. I don't know. (laughs) Or maybe he sees something. The ground is perfectly tilled in our cultural moment for us to read in a way that allows us to shape Scripture to suit our ends, rather than to allow Scripture to shape our lives, to define our horizons, to set our boundaries. 
And all that means is that it is so much easier for the old whisper, did God really say, to take up roots in our hearts and in our minds. It's much easier to read, not as members of a tradition, not as members of a community who are bound to the authority of Jesus, but as atomized tribes who freely associate to the extent that they agree with those who hold positional power. And believe me when I tell you, I wish I had an answer for how, like, how to solve that or why we have a thousand different denominations that have fought a thousand bitter battles over how to understand this library. I don't have an answer for that, at least not one that I can get into this morning. But I bring it up only to name the reality that these are the problems that we face when it comes to reading scripture. We always have this kind of tinge of doubt, this tinge of skepticism. We're we're always cautious about being sold a line because, you know, we're wary that someone or some institution is merely shaping truth as a means to exercise power and dominion over us, which is the exact opposite of what Jesus said, that the truth shall set you free. And yet, in all of that, we see in the life of Jesus, one who trusted the Bible as God's word to us. And to say that the Bible contains spiritual authority is to make the countercultural claim that the authority of God is mediated through the very words of Scripture as interpreted by reason, as interpreted through a community, instead of trusting our own intuitions as the sole compass for how to live deeply and well in the world. And I get it, all that immediately poses a question, right? How can a collection of dusty old letters and old scrolls written by dead people in a vastly different culture than ours over 2,000 years ago answer the complex questions of identity and authority in the world that we live in? That's either naive or backward at best or the object of ridicule or derision at worst. But I think one thing that helps us is to note that spiritual authority does not exist on an org chart or in a position. It exists within a person, specifically within the person of Jesus. And if you think about it, Jesus had like no positional authority in the world. He was born in obscurity. He was not a member of the Jewish council. He had no army to command. He had no legislation to draft. He had no, nothing going for him in the way of earthly power. And yet, in fact, in contrast to all of that, like he was made to suffer. He was condemned by all of the positional you know, powers of the world, all the ones who did have that kind of authority, be that the religious leaders in Jerusalem, be that you know, Herod in, in Israel, be that uh, Pilate as the you know, vice regent of Rome's power. And yet time and time again, when Jesus spoke, we are told that he speaks as one with authority. The very end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' kind of manifesto of what life is like in the kingdom of God, what life is like on earth as it is in heaven. He notes this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, Matthew writes, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. The Greek word for authority is exousia, 
It's kind of a, a, an interesting word. It's a combination of two things. It, it, it literally means that Jesus spoke out of his inner essence. He taught as one who was in alignment with and who bore witness to reality. When Jesus spoke, when Jesus acted in the world, he was demonstrating what God's reality is really like. And yet the kind of authority that he had was not played out in the top-down kind of, you know, coercion of overwhelming force that overrode the will of the people that he talked to. In fact, a lot of people, when he, he talked to them and they didn't like what he had to say, they just walked away or they threatened to kill him. And when they did, Jesus didn't necessarily argue with them. He, he didn't call down God's wrath upon them. He grieved and he moved on. And he told his disciples to shake the dust off their sandals and move on. So part of what it means to trust Jesus is to trust in his mental maps of reality. That in his teaching and in the story that he lived by, we have an access point to understand the nature of reality itself. That we can understand the heart and mind of God. We trust the scriptures because they are a way that we know God deeply and how we find life. So with all that said, I'm gonna just kind of sum up in three brief points what scriptural authority means. I'm gonna do my best to summarize N.T. Wright's book, Scripture and the Authority of God, in like three minutes is basically what I'm getting at. I'm close with just a kind of a few bullet points of what that looks like. Uh, next week as we wrap up the series, we're gonna do what does it mean the fact that the Bible is primarily a story, so what does it mean to live under the authority of a story? But for now, here's a little bullet points on biblical authority. First is that all authority is rooted in God. Uh, the authority of, of a tradition, the authority of Scripture itself, is all derivative from God's authority. So it means that whatever authority that Scripture has is given by God, working through the Scriptures to tell the story of who we are, who God is, and how we are to live in light of that. Second, God exercises his authority through human agents, through whom, incidentally, he gave the scriptures. And because God is this self-giving, this generous community of love known as the Trinity, God is a relational being. God has, from the very beginning of the story, chosen to vest authority in those who bear his image. The call in the garden was a call to exercise authority in the world. And God continues that call through the apostles, through the prophets, through the writers of scripture, because that is how God has always done things. Again, N.T. Wright puts it like this. Again and again, in the biblical story itself, we see that he does so through human agents, anointed and equipped by the Holy Spirit. And this is itself an expression of his love because he does not will simply to come into the world in a blinding flash of light and obliterate all opposition. He wants to reveal himself meaningfully within the space-time universe, not just passing it by tangentially, to reveal himself in judgment and in mercy in a way that will save people. So we get the prophets. We get obedient writers in the Old Testament, not only prophets, but those who wrote the Psalms and so on. As the climax of the story, we get Jesus himself as the great prophet, but how much more than a prophet? And we then get Jesus' people as the anointed ones. 
I can't overstate the point of how much it blows my mind that God chose to wager the salvation of the world on calling a community together and entrusting with that community the task of telling the story of cross and resurrection and living that story out in the world. Like that was God's idea of how to, to, to start this movement, to how to bring his kingdom into the world. Third, in living under the authority of the scriptures, we live under the authority of God. <clears throat> when we read the Bible, when we, when we apply it to our lives, when we, when we seek to live under it, we are listening to and submitting to God as an act of love and trust, ultimately as an act of worship. To state that in the negative, to not listen, to not be subject to the authority of scripture is to live in conflict with reality. And similar to the ways that there are natural laws like gravity, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter if you believe in gravity, gravity's always going to win. Well, in a similar way, there are spiritual, there are moral laws to the universe. And, and when we live against the flow of that, when we believe the lies about how, who we are, when we believe the lies about who God is, when we believe lies about the way the world works, we reap the results. And not as an act of divine vengeance, but because actions have consequences. I love this little quote from H.H. H. Farmer. He says, when you move against the grain of the universe, you will get splinters. And so to close, I want to just leave you with an image from the Psalms. This is from Psalm 119. It's the, it's the longest of the Psalms. It's this, this joyful. All of Psalm 119 is this, uh, this, this song, this celebration, this thanksgiving for the scriptures. And right in the center of it is this image. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Some of you are going back to the Amy Grant song, right, from the 80s. You know who you are. And I think what this suggests is that we're all lost and we're all looking for a way home. We're looking for a place where we can find rest, where the full weight of our loves and our longings can can find their resting point and say, I am finally home with Jesus. And so our practice for the week, for those of you who are following along in community groups with our Lenten guide, is simply to take on this ancient practice of committing scripture to memory. Jesus was able to call to mind scripture to counteract the temptations of the world. It does the same for us. It becomes a place where we are always at home with the Father in the kingdom. And so the invitation for us is to trust Jesus, to trust his read on reality, that he gives us a way of knowing God, that he gives us lights to find our way home. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for this collection of writings that tell us the true story of who you are. And God, we ask that as we go into the world this week, that you would show us how we find our place in the story and how we bring it with you to its glorious end. That your kingdom be here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord.
Amen.